I'm Charles Coplin, and you're listening to Songscapes, a production of Sustain Music and Nature. Many people know my guest Jonathan Meberg as the creative force behind the band Shearwater. He is also an author of his first book, This Year's A Most Remarkable Creature. He took a circuitous route to get there, and I asked him about his quote, So often the front door to things is closed, but the side door is open. Yes. Uh, the, I should say that the side door is open, um, but sometimes it depends on who you are. Um, the The context for that quote was trying to figure out how to, uh, how to get that record finished, but I think I was also thinking about how I managed to get into graduate school, which was because I was an English major as an undergraduate. But after I had gone to a lot of remote places around the world on this uh, incredible traveling fellowship that I was lucky enough to receive, uh, I wanted to learn more about the physical world, about biology, about geology. And the only way I could think to do that would be to try to get a graduate degree, but uh, I, trying to get a graduate degree in biology or something would have been really difficult to, to enter just as an English major. So I started hanging around the, ge- the geography department, which is this strange hybrid kind of discipline that sits in between the arts and sciences. Nowhere, no one knows quite where to put it. And I, uh, I became friendly with a professor there who liked birds. And after, you know, about a year of just sort of being there and sitting in on classes and things like that, he asked me if I wanted to apply to the program. But that was, it's that kind of approach, um, trying to figure out if there's, if the front door is closed, what's, what's another way you can get in. And as far as Jet Plane and Oxbow relates to the book, uh, there was a stage where we were recording that album and had run out of money. And I could not figure out how I was going to finish that record. And I remember sitting in a, a little coffee shop trying to, to, you know, figure out where I could squeeze enough funds from to do that. And I thought, well, I guess they do pay people to write books sometimes. And uh, I started thinking about writing the book then just as an idea of a thing that I could sell. Uh, so purely mercenary in a way, but also just necessary to get the work done, uh, to get the record finished. And that, of course, set me off on this process that's led eight, eight or nine years later to the book actually coming out. So, you know, why did you decide to write specifically A Most Remarkable Creature? What was behind that? Well, this story had been with me for a long time, almost 25 years. Uh, as I mentioned, when I graduated from college, uh, I'd never left the southeastern United States, but I, I got this traveling fellowship called the Thomas J. Watson Fellowship, which lets you pursue a project that you design yourself in one or more non-U.S. countries for a year. And the only requirements are that you go alone uh, and that you not affiliate with any other institutions or people. And so you're very much on your own uh, in places you've never been before. <laughs> and for me, I, I pitched this idea about documenting human community life at the ends of the earth. So the 21-year-old version of me just looked at a map basically and said, well, that looks very far away. And uh, that's where I went. And I started off by going to Tierra del Fuego. And then I realized you could get to the Falklands from there, which are also down at the far southern end of South America in the, in the Atlantic Ocean. And because the Falklands are not only geographically, but also culturally isolated because they're sort of resolutely British uh, in, in a world that resolutely is not, or surrounded by countries that resolutely are not. And 
I thought that would be a fascinating place to see. And so I went there and then I realized that you could see uh, penguins there because penguins breed there. And I thought, well, I shouldn't pass up the chance to see that. So I went to an island where you can see penguins. And on that island, I met these strange uh, birds that looked like a combination of a hawk and a crow uh, that came running across the ground towards me and just stared at me. And one of them took a pen that I gave it and flew away with it. Uh, and I thought, what on earth are these? I've never even heard of these. And there was something so uncanny about that moment, about this moment of connection uh, between me and them. I wasn't interested in birds all that much before that, um, but it it was just arresting. And when I went back to the one town in the Falklands, the town of Stanley, uh, I met a British ornithologist named Robin Woods, who was about to do a survey of breeding pairs of these birds on the outer islands of the Falklands. There's almost 800 islands in the Falklands, believe it or not. Most of them don't have people on them. And so I pestered him until he took me along as an assistant. And that was my introduction to the world of uh, subantarctic wildlife and birds in general. And that really turned my head in a way that, that, uh, you know, it, it stayed, uh, it stayed turned since then. So I've been thinking about these birds since that time, because it turned out that not that much was written or known about these birds. Uh, they belonged to, they were called striated caracaras, and they belong to this strange subgroup of falcons that lives mostly in South America. And I found out that Darwin had met them in 1833 and had the same kind of reaction to them. And he wondered, what were these birds? Uh, why did they act like this? They said they stole hats and compasses and other things from the crew of the Beagle. Uh, and just were completely unafraid, uh, tame and curious, mischievous and inquisitive, he said. And that's exactly how I found them. And, but he wondered what they were doing in this one place. Yeah, why, he said, had they chosen these islands for their metropolis? And he never figured out the answer to this question. And so I kind of took it as, the, as a mission and became eventually the, uh, both first casually, just I, I thought about it a lot. Then I wrote a thesis about it in geography. And the more I thought about it, the more I thought that these birds were a wonderful way, and this question was a wonderful way, to hang this really big story about the history of uh, life on Earth in some ways, uh, especially since the Cretaceous extinctions and all that we don't know about the natural world sort of seen through this lens. So that was 1997, if I'm right. Yeah, almost and here we are, years ago. Right, and yet 25 years later, it's still very much a part of your consciousness. Um, so if I would have told you in 1997 you were going to write a book on this in 2021, how would you have reacted to that? <laughs> I would have been a little alarmed that it was going to take me that long. I, I used to think that I was a really good writer and then uh, slowly became unconvinced of that. And by the time I got done with the book, I just thanked my lucky stars for all the people that helped me to proofread and copy edit and um, narrow it down and beat the thing into shape. Uh, if, when, I really learned that writing a book is a kind of a team effort. And speaking of team efforts, you're also a band leader, singer, songwriter of Shearwater, mm -hmm. and that is named after a bird, if I'm correct. So how did that kind of come about? It is. I mean, that's a word that I first encountered in the Falklands because there, uh, there's at least one species of shearwater that breeds there. Uh, they're seabirds. They're related to albatrosses, but they're small. Uh, and most people will never see one, even though they're extremely numerous and they have the largest migration of, uh, or the, the furthest migration of any bird on earth because they fly these huge figure of eight loops around entire oceanic basins, the whole Atlantic, etc. 
they can, like all the birds in their family, they can drink salt water. Uh, they can sleep on the sea. They don't really need to come to land at all except to, to breed. And the, the thought of this bird that's very, uh, they're long lived. They live 40, 50, 60 years. I think it, for a while, the oldest known banded bird was a sooty shearwater or maybe a manx shearwater. And I thought this was a good omen for a, a musical group in some ways. They travel all the time, live a long time. Uh, they're kind of in this world, but not of it at the same time. Uh, and I also just like the word. So obviously I'm going to want to talk more about the band, but I also want to sort of get everything out there. There's also Loma. So can you kind of yes. fill us in on your relationship to Loma? Loma is another band that I started a couple of years ago with my friends Dan Dzinski and Emily Cross. Uh, they were touring with Shearwater in a band called Cross Record. Uh, and I liked their music so much that I just suggested that we make an album together. And we liked the results of that uh, so well that we did a tour and then we, we just did a second record. So that's, I haven't put out a new Shearwater record since 2016, although I'm finishing one right now. And the Loma, putting out the Loma records has been the main focus of the last few years. So I want to talk about what you're working on with Shearwater, but I, I need to pause here to pay you homage because you got to work with Brian Eno. I'm going to say that again. You got to work with Brian Eno. Yes. Which I don't want that to be a throwaway. No, so, no, it, it's a, it was incredible was to work with Brian Eno. It, 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 what happened was that uh, we, it was, I guess, Christmas of 2018 after, after our first record had come out, um, there was some kind of a Boxing Day special on, on the BBC and Eno was on there and he played one of our songs from that record as an example of something that he really liked that was new which just floored us, of course. That was a good day. Yeah, that, that's that's a, good you day. know, I phone lit up. It's like Brian Eno was playing you on the BBC. I'm like, what? <laughs> that's not true. And uh, then a couple of weeks later, he did it again on French national radio. So um, I reached out through his management to say, you know, we don't want him to produce our record, but if, uh, you know, if he had any interest in collaborating in any way on a song for the new record we're working on, we'd be honored. And... Um, his manager very kindly said yes, and so we uh, we communicated with him by sending files back and forth. I never spoke to him, uh, but we sent him a mix, or we sent him tracks, and he sent this entire mix back to us. Some months later, we'd almost, you know, I'd almost given up hope that that was ever going to happen. Uh, but then one night it turned up, and it was beautiful. It was exactly what we would have hoped for from him. It has that strange, um, kind of un quantifiable depth and um, mysterious calming quality to it. And we use that track to close the record. It's called Homing. Sonic Landscapes, I think he refers to it occasionally. Yeah, he's very, very good at this, at creating entire sort of worlds that you just want to live in and don't feel like leaving usually when they end. And so it was, yeah, it was a dream come true for us and to get to work with somebody like that. So we still, you know, that, still never met him. So it, it's a, it, it's, it's kind of his mystery is intact. It was really a wonderful experience. Sometimes you meet your heroes and it's not what you might hope it would be. And uh, yeah. in this case, now uh, yeah, he, he lived up to it. And then some, I think we're going to build a statue of him. Yeah. I've been there. I, I like that. He <laughs> maintains the mystique. That's good. Yeah. It's very that's where unique. we got to communicate purely as musicians. There was sort of no, um, you know, Brian, you know, the famous musician, producer, thinker, writer, et cetera, in the way. But but that's such a great segue to the next thing I want to talk about. Um, 
And I want to linger here for a second and I want to compliment you because I am just like, I'm a Bowie freak, freak. And your cover of Lodger, which I encourage everybody listening to this to go to YouTube and not just check out like Look Back in Anger or Fantastic Voyage, but like the whole thing. Um, why, why that album? And then I, I, I also want to talk about apparently you performed the Berlin Trilogy, another, yeah, you did. know, kind of, you know, weird coincidence or this was post, this was pre, you know, right? Uh, did we did that. Yeah. We're about the same time. I think I can't remember. He didn't have anything to do with that. Um, that was a separate thing that we did through. No, I know. I know that. Season. I'm just curious the timing between. I can't remember if we worked with him exactly. It, just, it was either just after or just before. Yeah. Um, Most people that are going to cover Bowie are going to do like rebel rebel or let's dance or space oddity. And yet you pick lodger. Well, in, and you crush it. So oh, I just thank, a little thank bit you on that. Well, uh, what happened? Let's see. What do I say here? In 2016, we toured for a record jet plane in Oxbow. And one of the records that I've been listening to a lot while we were making that record was Bowie's 1979 album Lodger, uh, which is a very weird uh, record that has some excellent songs on it. It's some really inscrutable production. It was the last of the three. Uh, so-called Berlin Trilogy records that he made with Brian Eno and uh, Tony Visconti. And uh, I just thought it would be fun to, to cover songs from that record, maybe two or three at a time or something in, in our shows. Uh, but this was before he died. And then he died while we were rehearsing for the tour. And then I thought, well, I don't know if we should do this or not. But then I thought, wait, we should definitely do this. And so we kept building up our, our repertoire as the tour as the tour went on every night, we would try to play another song from that record or another two songs from that record until we'd finally built up the whole thing. And then we performed the whole thing a couple of times, um, as an encore for a regular set, which made for a really long show, but it was a, it was wonderful for the people that stuck around. I, I said like, you know, anybody wants to leave can go, but we're going to play the whole David Bowie record lodger now. And people stayed and it was really this cathartic kind of, experience for for us for the audience uh, and and then on one of our stops we stopped in at the offices of the onion um av club in chicago and they had asked us to do a cover of a different song uh which we did but we also told them that hey by the way we can play this whole bowie record and they said well go ahead and do it and so they filmed us playing that and that's uh, that's what's available online as you can see us performing it yeah, and as I said, I encourage everybody listening to this to go check it out because uh, my Bowie standards are quite high. And and I also think it was filmed very well. And the background vocals and you guys look like you're having a blast. It's it's uh, it's great. Oh, it's a, it's such a joy to play that music. It's it's was really fun to get inside it and understand how it worked and and see how they built those songs because they seem so odd. Many of them on, on the surface. But they all have their own internal logic, and so the the fun of it is trying to take them apart and see how all these different parts fit together, and see if you can then reassemble them and make them sound kind of like themselves. So it was a it was a kind of almost like a forensic reconstruction. You know, there's no scores for this kind of music. You just have to listen to it and figure out what's going on. And with a, an album like Lodger, which has so many elements in the mix, and they're pretty muddy at, at times, you have to really really strain to to hear what's happening. And then we did that on an even grander scale 
uh, for WNYC when we performed Bowie's entire Berlin trilogy over three nights. Jonathan Meberg's new book, A Most Remarkable Creature, The Hidden Life and Epic Journey of the World's Smartest Birds of Prey, is in bookstores now. Back with more after this word from Sustain. Hi, I'm Betsy. And I'm Harrison. We're the co-founders of Sustain Music and Nature. Sustain is a nonprofit that makes music a force for nature. By tapping into the emotional power of music and cultural sway of artists, we engage new audiences with their environment. Check out Sustain Music and Nature on social media to see our public land music videos and learn about upcoming concerts in the great outdoors. I'm Charles Coplin, and you're listening to Songscapes. Shearwater performed David Bowie's Berlin Trilogy, three of my favorite albums, Lodger, Low, and Heroes, in New York City. And I asked Jonathan if there was any video of that performance. Well, uh, you can't see it anywhere. There's no video from that. There might be a few clips online somewhere, but there are audio recordings that were broadcast, and you can uh, actually purchase those on the Shearwater's Bandcamp site. so th- those are available, and I, if you're interested in this, I do recommend them. It's those are some of the most fun performances I've ever been part of. It was a huge team of people, uh, nine or ten musicians on the stage a lot of the time, and we had just had to completely, as I said about Lodger, just reconstruct those albums from top to bottom. And one of the things I asked John Schaefer from WNYC, who put the shows together for his program New Sounds, um, was if he thought that Carlos Alomar, Bowie's guitarist, between young Americans and, and outside, I think, uh, would be willing to come and conduct us for Warsawa because that's what he used to do on Bowie's 1978 world tour is he would conduct the musicians because it's a very slow instrumental piece. And so he had this huge baton, conductor's baton, that he would come out and he would conduct the whole band, which at the time was Bowie's great rhythm section with Dennis Davis and um, uh, George Murray and Adrian Ballou, and just an extraordinary moment in that tour. That's how they would open the shows. So when we performed that song from Low, Carlos came and he conducted us while we played it, which was one of the most incredible moments of my performing life, I think. That is so cool. That is so cool. All right. uh, Thanks for indulging me, the Bowie love. Oh yeah, those those records are so inspiring. They have, there's so much in them. There's so much imagination, there's so much heart. Uh, there's so much whimsy uh, and trying to understand how those things came about and what methods they used to achieve them was just a, you know, it's like probably not unlike doing a study for a painter. You know, if you're trying to just absolutely duplicate something that's in front of you and see if you can figure out what techniques they were using, what, how did they use their judgment in this way? And um, th- there's a great sense of fun that comes through when you re- realize what they're doing. The, Sadie Powers, our bass player, got to ask Carlos about the bass part, for instance, in the the song The Secret Life of Arabia, which is the last track on Heroes, because as she'd been transcribing it and learning it, she said, this part doesn't repeat for like 32 bars. It's a bass figure that seems pretty normal, but as you study it, you realize he never repeats anything that he does for this long. And Carlos just laughed and said, oh, yeah, that was a little game we were playing. Instead of having a two-bar phrase or a four-bar phrase or a 16-bar phrase, it was like, how about a 32-bar phrase? Just as a trick on George to see if he could do it. 
Well, I'm going to pivot, but I just want to end this little section by saying I just the fact that you chose to do the Berlin trilogy to me is is just for me, that's high praise, because like I said before, your average Bowie would be Rebel Rebel or Space Oddity. But but let's let's talk a little bit. Um, I'm curious because your dad uh, worked for the EPA, if I'm right. And I, yeah, I, I'm, for 42 years he did. Yeah. So how now here you are with a new book and. Obviously, you have a close relationship with nature, with birds. How big of an influence was your dad on you? Very little in that way, which is kind of interesting. As his role at the EPA was um, as an administrator, and it was especially focused on the EPA's role in regulating uh, pollutants that go into the air. And you can kind of be pretty disconnected from the ecological side of the world if you're focused on limiting certain concentrations of toxic chemicals going into the air. It has an effect on all that. But I would say, you know, his passion was more as a, um, a dedicated bureaucrat in the, in the, not in the pejorative sense. Um, one thing I did learn from watching him was how much we need bureaucrats, uh, how people of really good conscience do in fact work for the federal government when uh, there's an awful lot of, uh, of dunking on, on the government that goes on, especially in this country. Um, about the idea of a federal government in and of itself. And the people that I saw and met, you know, who were coworkers, colleagues, friends of my dad, um, I just saw this team of uh, very hardworking, smart people who were trying to make the planet a healthier place for us and for um, all creatures. I, I was came away with nothing but respect for them. That's an interesting answer. So, but, but in some ways though, but like I've, but I've gotten my dad into bird watching. Um, I've had a lot of uh, long conversations with him about nature, about the, the, the importance of the natural world, about various different plants and animals. And that was just never his focus. I mean, he came into it as a political scientist originally who got a summer job at the EPA and then stayed for 42 years. When he retired the, the day before Trump was inaugurated, and I went down to D.C. To, to see him and then participate in the protest the day after. That's a good day to go. Yeah, with him, because he was no longer... You know, you yeah. no longer work for them. Yeah. Um, so I ask all my guests this, and between whatever occurred to you when you were younger with your dad, or even this life-changing year of 1997 for you, do you have a favorite public lands moment? In the United States? Anywhere. In the U.S., certainly, the, the Grand Staircase region has become more and more important and special to me in the last 10 or 15 years. Uh, I, I went through it on tour a couple of times and just with it just was, those landscapes are head spinning. And I thought, what is this place? I had never seen anything like it. I didn't really know it existed. Um, I'd seen pictures of some little pockets around that area, like at arches or canyon lands. Um, but there's the, the vast area around Boulder Mountain, the Aquarius Plateau, um, the whole national monument, which of course the uh, Trump administration was trying to shrink, uh, is just one of the most stunning landscapes, not just in the United States, but I think on earth. And there's one canyon in particular there that's about a a six-day hike to get down it. You have to wear a wetsuit and do a lot of swimming. And it's it's not, uh, you don't have to bring your rock climbing gear, but other than that, it's pretty difficult, but it's one of my most treasured uh, experiences. I've done that twice and I'm hoping to do that again. Uh, this year, if I can. 
but it's a it's an oasis basically in the desert. What's so striking about that landscape is it's this high uplifted sandstone desert with you know red and white sandstone layered rocks that have been carved out by the wind and water. Um, but then there's water flowing down into it off the tops of these giant flat mountains. That uh, so there's you're following a river through the desert essentially, and all around you is sort of a scrub. Uh, pinion juniper type desert in red sandstone. Um, and then down in the river canyon, there are ferns and columbine and um, even a few dug firs that have managed to slot their way in somewhere. There are beavers in there. Uh, there's just wildlife everywhere. It's just an, an Edenic uh, place. And uh, visiting that, that's probably my favorite section of public land in the in the country. You had mentioned, or you had answered me originally in the United States. So do you have a, a favorite public land, like moment of awakening somewhere else uh, across the globe? Well, certainly the Jason Islands and the Falklands. Uh, they're uh, an archipelago in the northwest corner of the Falklands, and that's where I first went with Robin Woods to count breeding striated caracaras. Uh, they figure heavily in the book, and they are, they're a, a home to breeding colonies of tens of thousands of albatrosses and penguins and burrowing petrels. There are seals and whales and dolphins. And uh, I just had no idea that the world could be like that. And that when you see them, what, what I didn't realize then, I could tell it was extraordinary, but what I realized as I researched the book was that I was seeing a glimpse of the world almost as it was before there were people. Because the Falklands, unusually for any place in the in the Western Hemisphere, were actually the about the only place aside from say the Galapagos uh, that were actually discovered by Europeans. So far as we know, Amerindian people never visited the Falklands. So the European whalers and sealers who started to turn up there in the uh, 18th century were the first humans to encounter the animals that were there, which starts to make the reactions that these caracaras and, and other animals there have to you make more sense. They haven't yet decided what to do about you, what you are, are you a threat? Uh, are you uh, some kind of opportunity, perhaps? And then you extrapolate from that and you realize this is what the natural world was like. Animals didn't always run at the sight of us. And for the people who came over the Bering Strait 15,000 years ago and walked into North America and then into South America, this was the world they encountered over and over and over and over. Just one set of animals after another that did not regard them as uh, something to be feared, but as, as peers, possibly as prey. Um, but certainly as equals. There is a story I've heard you tell. I love this story. Um, can you talk about the Brooklyn marching band moment? <laughs> yes. Um, that, that comes late in the book. Um, the, I was standing outside of a laundromat in Bushwick in Brooklyn, and I heard this strange sound of this, uh, this cheerful sounding marching band coming up the street. And I thought it might be one of the punk marching bands. Like I have, I have some friends in these very informal marching bands that occasionally get together. But uh, what came up the street was a procession of uh, people from the highlands of Bolivia and Peru uh, marking the festival of Urcupina, which is a, a, a Peruvian apparition of the Virgin Mary. And they were dressed in the traditional outfits of the Andean highlands. Uh, and carrying an, an image of the Virgin Mary in a, in a pickup truck and playing uh, brass instruments, playing Andean music. And the fact that people, these people from so far away were transporting this ritual 
um, this culture intact you know, to the shores of the East River was just uh, mind-boggling to me and, and wonderful. Uh, the people in the Andean Highlands uh, also tend to uh, respect and in some cases almost venerate caracaras, which is something I learned in the in the course of researching the book. Um, the Inca emperors were the only people allowed to wear uh, the feathers of mountain caracaras and their ceremonial headdresses called the mascapaicha. Uh, and even then, uh, the Inca were a relatively late civilization. I, I, the sense I get is that these birds have had a special association there for quite a long time. There are a lot of folk traditions associated with them, mostly as um, uh, not dissimilar to ravens in the Pacific Northwest. They have a um, they are sort of good fortune. They're good luck. They have a wisdom about them. Uh, sometimes they show people how to do things, like uh, they give them the secrets of fire or medicine. Or um, They have important cultural roles, which are quite different from the way they were treated in the Falklands, which is basically as agricultural pests for quite a long time. There's another quote that you have, which seems to be really germane to, to I certainly understand this quote, um, particularly because of your diverse interests and career. And it's, I've opted for being a generalist rather than a specialist. And I'm curious what was behind that quote. And if you regret being a generalist, if that bothers you. (laughs) Well, there was a time when I felt that I was having to give up my academic career. I remember it very clearly. I was standing at a, a truck stop in Oklahoma on tour with a band and I had to place a call to a professor at the University of Texas who was going to be my advisor if I was going to go on and do a PhD in biology. And I'd been trying to keep this sort of possibility afloat for a long time, but it had come to a head. And I finally had to call him and tell him I just couldn't give up playing music. And he was really kind about it, but I felt crushed about it for years because, you know, touring in a band is not especially glamorous. And there were plenty of times sitting in broom closets waiting to go on where I thought, well, that was clearly the wrong move. Uh, And I also thought that any possibility of studying these birds had just gone out the window that I would probably never see them again. What I was delighted to learn was that that was not true, Uh, that partly because there were so few people interested, I could maintain a connection with um, the few other people who cared uh, to study them, who cared about the habitats that they lived in, could follow the research without too much effort because there wasn't much of it. And um, producing this book was a sort of a way of, I felt like I've, I've redeemed my interest in, in some sense, um, that I was able to give the thing the proper attention. The, the scary thing about being a generalist, if I have just a moment. A welcome guest. <laughs> they just want to know what's going on. They might pop off again. Let's see. I think the danger of being a generalist, if you have many interests, um, is that you can become a dilettante where you're not really very good at anything in particular and, and uh, instead just have or kind of a fan of lots of things without any way in to actually participate in them. Uh, so it, it soothed the neurosis of mine, I guess, to, to finally produce this book and try to make something coherent out of all that I'd seen and thought about and, and experienced over all this time. Um, the, the good thing about being a generalist is that... Uh, all of these different streams of, of thought and interest can cross-pollinate and can produce um, thoughts and, and creations that you, you might never have uh, stumbled across otherwise. And that's one of the things I really liked about geography as a discipline, actually, is that it sat at this funny nexus between the arts and the sciences. 
it was in the College of Arts in the at the University of Texas. So I have a, a Master of Arts in Geography, but I spent most of my time in the Biology Building. So it it was a wonderful way to take uh, strains of, of of knowledge, strains of thought and imagination from different disciplines and, and combine them. And that's what I think, you know, a, a successful generalist can do. And of course, not coincidentally, that's what the Caracaras pretty much do uh, as compared to their, uh, to other falcons in the falcon family. Uh, the Caracaras are uh, kind of opportunistic scavengers. They'll eat whatever you got. And they're always looking for uh, something new that they can take advantage of or, or a new resource that they can work out how to, to work to their advantage. So I asked all my guests this as well, and I wrap with this, and it could be based on something you're recording now. I know you're doing the quarantine music series and you're in the studio, or it could be a David Bowie song or whatever. I don't want to put too much into your head, but is there a favorite song you have that is sort of brings you into state of consciousness with a positive relationship to nature? Could be one of yours, could be somebody else's. The first song that comes to mind actually is a recording by Jody Stetcher from 1966 um, called The Dreadful Wind and Rain. And it's a, it's a folk tune um, with a violin, guitar, single voice. And it sings this, uh, this eerie little story of, uh, of these two girls walking by a stream and they're competing for uh, a suitor of some kind. And one of them pushes the other one into the river and she drowns. And then her body washes up and is found by, I think um, the daughter of a miller who mistakes her body for a swan at first. And then this mysterious fiddler character walks by and he takes this body, he takes it away and he makes a violin out of the bones of this young woman. And the uh, and describes the violin and then it says that the only there's a refrain in it with um, oh the wind and rain and the the only the only song says the only song the fiddle would play was is oh the dreadful wind and rain keep up to date with jonathan's music at sheerwatermusic.com and they're on Twitter and Instagram as Shearwater Band. His new book is A Most Remarkable Creature, The Hidden Life and Epic Journey of the World's Smartest Birds of Prey. And you can find him on Twitter and Instagram as Jonathan Meeberg. I'm Charles Copland. You have been listening to Songscapes, a production of Sustain Music and Nature.